man. Welcome to On Democracy with F.P. Wellman. <clears throat> I am Fred Wellman, your host, coming to you from the now chilly suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri, also bucolic. As always, we are sponsored by our friends at Vi Media. Vi Media, of course, is your award-winning, award-winning, no words, digital marketing agency based right here in greater St. Louis. They're your partner to, uh, in every industry you're in from St. Louis nationwide. They can serve all your digital marketing needs. You can find them at vi.media, V-I-E.media. I hope you check them out. They're good friends of us, and I appreciate their support. Man, you know, the midterms look like they might be about done. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> got a lot to talk about today. I got an incredible guest on the show. I'm so excited to have a friend on again. With that, let's just get on with the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. As mentioned, I am your host, Fred Wellman. I'm so glad to have you here on the show once again this week, live back in the studio again after being on the road in Georgia last week for the midterms. It ended up being uh, super fun. Uh, but now I'm home where I belong. This is the show where we talk with smart people who are fighting for our democracy across this great country and, you know, frankly, around the world. Uh, I think the midterms technically are still going a little bit. You know, uh, there, there's still some races being counted. It hasn't actually been settled yet. Uh, it's looking like our friends in the Republican Party will get control of the House. It's looking like a very thin margin, so we should expect a complete mess. Uh, we did hold the Senate. Um, everything I'm reading, as we mentioned last week in the show, it looks like President Biden may have one of the most successful first-term midterm elections of any president since the 30s. In uh, addition, well, somewhere like top three, if you will, and uh, and that's all good. Uh, but you know what? As we left the midterms behind, I've really wanted to start talking about one, a little bit of hot wash of what just happened and what it means, but also our larger democratic issues, of course. President Trump announced he's going to run for election again last night, which is always a mess. So I was looking for a guest. I was fishing around. Some people told me, no, <laughs> I've been wanting to get my friend Tony Messenger on the show forever. Um, and so he is going to join us today. Tony Messenger is the Metro columnist of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. In 2019, Tony won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary for a series of columns on debtors, prisons in Missouri. 2016, Messenger was awarded a Missouri Honor Medal, highest award bestowed by the University of Missouri School of Journalism. If you know the Mizzou School of Journalism, one of the top journalism schools in the country. Uh, same year, he won a national headliner for editorial writing and on and on and on with awards and awards. He recently published his first book, Profit and Punishment, which is right here on the desk. It digs deeper into the way America criminalizes the poor in the name of justice. It's a great book. I can't recommend it enough. We will talk about it a little bit. Uh, now, he started learning journalism, man, across the country. Let's see, Tony, what? Colorado, Arizona, Nebraska, South Dakota. Started off in Yuma, Colorado. <laughs> Been in Missouri since, well, I think 1999, if I write. So where he now works at the, a number of the leading newspapers. But now he's arrived at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, where he serves as a Metro columnist. Uh, we are neighbors. Tony, welcome to the show. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me, Fred. It's yeah. good to be in the uh, uh, virtual studio in Creve Corps. Pretty cool, right? Looks, I know. pretty <laughs> cool. Know. I like it. Yeah, it's funny. I, I like the book placement. Thank you like you. that? I, uh, St. Martin's Press, thanks you for that lovely placement. Thank you. I hope I get a check. <laughs> As you can see from the... I say the, that every time I go to the mailbox. Uh, yes. Am I going to get a check? Where's my check? Know. Where's my check? Well, you know, it's such a profitable business writing books. Uh, well, of course, I love... I love the book. This is actually my galley copy you sent me, which is a funny story. I, I, I you know, I always love having folks I know on, and we always tell the story of how we met. And 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 for those who don't you know, Tony and I are both here in St. Louis, and I moved here what I guess August of last year, and the book was just getting ready to come 
out and and, and I had been re- Tony had did a really great art, uh, column about Afghanistan and I at that time was actually kind of helping some of our Afghan refugee organizations here in St. Louis had some free time in my hands after that last job I had and uh, and and he DM me hey I've got this book coming out I'd love you to I'd love to send you a copy I said yeah man yeah no problem I'd love to get it he goes I can mail it to you I said I'm pretty sure we live across the street from each other, <laughs> you know, because as it turns out, my girlfriend lives right in the same neighborhood, just about that Tony does. So it's, instead we met for a beer and we keep meeting for beers. So <laughs> it's good to have it's you. It's a good thing. Good it's to have you thing. on the show, man. So much beer, going on. Beer is not just for breakfast anymore. That is true. And yeah. we do enjoy it. And I don't drink as much. And you always give me shit about drinking cider, which is fine. I still respect you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I appreciate you coming in here the last minute. And I've been eager to have you on, as I mentioned. Obviously, your perspective is so unique on Missouri, uh, the national trends. And of course, especially your work on our broken judicial system. And the reason I wanted to have you on the show, and, and people may ask why as a, a metro economist who writes about crime, I a lot on a show about democracy, man, you, you cannot get to a more important topic on our democracy than this third pillar of our democracy, the third pillar of our government, right? Legislative, executive, and then our judicial. And our judicial structure is broke as hell. And, and Tony is truly an expert on this, but in addition, he has a unique perspective on all the politics. So, you know, I'm not going to dork around. Let's just get right to it, Tony, as we talked about. You know, I, I think we should start with the midterms. Uh, you know, one of the things I've been hammering a lot repeatedly is that, you know, the GOPs at the end there and in and, and those last few months was really hammering the crime fear, you know, the mongering of fear about crime. Uh, it, it seems to have failed in your newest column. It goes right at that topic, since even in St. Louis City, where, you know, obviously crime is a perennial issue here in our city, uh, it, it's, it's flattened, actually. It's, it's declining in many ways. Uh, and candidates that were tagged as soft on crime actually won. I believe the, the Board of Aldermen president uh, was kind of getting hit by being soft on crime because she was looking at criminal justice reform. Um, do you, so do you see, do you think voters saw through the bullshit messaging about crime? And, and how do you see that from your perspective as a, a, a writing about it? I do. And that's what I what I wrote in today's column. And, and I think there's a connection both locally and nationally, because St. Louis is one of those cities that there was a theme that Republicans were trying to push. And that is that uh, Democrats are causing crime to rise. Look at right. all of the Democratic cities in which there's right. high crime. Never mind that many of those cities are in Republican states that that also have very high crime, even in the non-urban areas. But, but the point was to drive fear, to, to, to scare people. And, and the numbers that, that Republicans were using were from the pandemic. Right. You know, the, the, the crazy thing that we, uh, that the political scientists and criminologists and all sorts of folks who study these things are going to be busy doing for the next 10, 20 years is looking at how the pandemic changed everything. Yep. And yep. crime rose in a lot of places uh, related to the pandemic. But last year in St. Louis, in 2021, the first year of a, a new progressive mayor, right. uh, Tashara Jones, crime dropped and homicides dropped. Right. And St. Louis was relatively unique in 2021 because other cities were still dealing with a, a, a post-pandemic rise. Right. Well, I decided to take a look after the midterms uh, at, the, at the local stats. And once again, if you compare end of October to end of October in St. Louis, homicides have dropped again. Mm. And crime in almost all major violent categories has dropped. There is one place in, in, that is consistent in cities because of a flaw in the Kia and Hyundai cars. Mm-hmm. Auto thefts are through the roof in a lot of these cities. 
But I talked to Rick Rosenfeld, a, a, a criminologist at UMSOL who studies these things in St. Louis and around the country. And he said, indeed, the actual statistics are so completely different than what the fear mongering was around the election in terms of, oh, my God, crimes out of control in our cities. In fact, Hmm. crime, specifically violent crime, specifically homicides, is down in 2022 in most American cities. Now, that doesn't mean it's not too high. It doesn't mean that. My colleague who got her car stolen the other day isn't a victim of crime. It doesn't mean that those real things uh, haven't happened, that people who live in downtowns in cities all over the country aren't dealing with the fact that there aren't as many people downtown as there used to be because of the pandemic. And therefore, some of the crime is magnified because there isn't as much density. And that sort of density tends to lead to uh, safety in numbers and that sort of thing. Right. So crime is a very real thing. And it's a thing that people get emotional about. But my point of the column was that voters, I think, to some degree, saw through it. Um, because they either weren't feeling it in their own lives or they paid attention to things other than just the fear mongering. But the reality of the results is whether it's in a democratic primary, like we had in St. Louis for the board of aldermen, uh, race, uh, or whether it is in the, the, the national races for, uh, uh, governor and Senate in which, Democrats won when Republicans were pushing a crime fear theme. Um, That's telling. And it says something about the state of America. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the column is just to say, hey, look, you know, the data has to matter at some point. You know, that's the problem that I think we have in so much of our politics these days is that words don't matter anymore. Um, You know, Trumpism has sort of changed the reality of, 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 of what some people think. Oh, Donald Trump said it. Oh, therefore that's what I I saw it on Fox news. I saw it on Newsmax. It must be true. Never mind what the actual data says. And the other corollary, I didn't write about this in my column, but I was thinking about it as I'm writing um, that I think fits with the midterms. The other big loser in the election was anybody who really pushed the big lie. Right. Um, all of the secretary of state candidates, Republicans, all of the gubernatorial candidates, Republicans who really pushed the big lie hard, they all lost. Yep. And so American voters said something uh, in this election. It wasn't just protecting democracy. It was tell us the truth. Yep. What's what's the truth about what's going on in our nation? And and how can I, as a voter, have an impact? And voters had a really big impact on this midterm. I mean, it's a historic midterm, even if even if the Democrats end up losing the House. um, And frankly, if they lose it by two or three, I would argue they're actually better off uh, going into 2024, because now all of a sudden President Joe Biden and the Democrats have an actual villain and a daily villain and not just whatever weirdness the former president is pushing on a given day, because there's going to be real weirdness happening in the daily headlines in a house in which Republicans won't actually be able to pass anything. And that's what I said too. That's what I said. Uh, And and, and, and so actually I think there's a, there Nancy Pelosi may be uh, the current speaker of the house 
may be a, a little bit pleased, actually, if she's not the speaker for the next couple of years because of what it might mean politically in 2024, because having a villain makes a difference in politics. Well, and the thing is, I, I mentioned it in my last week's episode is they're going to have, you already see it. Margie Taylor Greene held a capital, uh, had a, had a press conference at Capitol and was getting a million questions. You know, they have to elevate Margie Taylor Greene. They're going to have to elevate if Bobert wins, they're going to have to elevate uh, Matt Gates. They're going to have to elevate Biggs, Gosar, the the Freedom Caucus of you guys, the most extremist members of the Congress, the House for the Republican Caucus, they desperately need to do anything. Uh, if they only have three votes or more of a majority, I mean, the thing is, too, they may not, in a 435-person Congress, not everybody's there for work every day, right? So, I mean, it's one of the challenges they've had in the Senate is they've had, a, you know, the Senate, you know, senators get sick or whatever, they miss votes. You need a strong majority. They have a razor-thin majority. And and I've got a feeling that if Miss Pelosi does stay in in Congress, she's going to hold her her caucus is going to be just fine. <laughs> yeah, they're going to yeah. they're going to they're going to stay disciplined. They've been the one thing you can say for the last two years. The normal the normal Democratic caucus is you know is like herding cats. Man, these cats have been really well herded the last two years, right? There's been very little of the infighting here and there, but I think you're going to see a very strong Democratic caucus, a discipline in the Democratic caucus. If they can hold their discipline on the Democratic side, they're going to be able to do a lot of things. Kind of like our friend Crystal Quaid here in Missouri, right? You can do a lot as minority, but like you said, what we're going to do, and me as a political operator is going to do, man, I'm going to get all these clips of every time Margie Tara Green goes on and now going to be on a committee saying her crazy stuff. Coast are these guys? I'm going to run those clips just like they have for years, running clips of AOC. Right? We're going to do the same thing to them. So I, I think you're right. It's it's not great for the country. I wish we would win, um, but I do think you're right. We have someone now uh, on our side. But I, I want to keep pulling the thread too on that crime narrative, right? And 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 get to your book a little bit because in your book, Profit and Punishment, uh, it's really a gutting read and explores. You know, that, <laughs> that's very subtle for those it's a watching. Dancing, it's a no, look at that. Book. That's very good. Marketing. Actually, a little bit. Of Did they teach you that? <laughs> For those listening, uh, Tony is shamelessly printing his book on camera. <laughs> you know, it uh, it's a gutting read, you know, and explores how our judicial system essentially punished being poor through the eyes. And you do this through the eyes of three single monitors and their journeys through the process. It's not a happy at times. Um, but, you know, at the core of it is a system that takes Americans convicted of relatively minor crimes and then saddles them with fines and fees that they're unable to pay, uh, which leads them to jail and then even more fines and fees. And it's it's, a, it's an endless cycle. And, you know, there's a growing criminal justice reform movement, which is what you talk about today, that's attacking, for example, they just filed a lawsuit to attacking the cash bail system in Los Angeles, um, the second largest city in America. They're trying to get it has a, the largest cash bail system. Um, but, you know, what else can be doing to, done to reform this mass machine? And I mean, it undermines our democracy when it, it's, it's part of this divide. I think we face where the being poor is punished, right? Versus those that have and the have nots that leads to things like, I think Donald Trump's. So, uh, you know, talk to me a little bit about where, what you came, you pull for profit of punishment. What does it mean for us as a democracy? So one of the things that really drew me to this topic, to criminal justice reform, uh, as you know, I've written a lot about politics in my career, yes, primarily in Missouri, but um, there is, probably not another single topic that I've covered in the last decade or so that has more potential for uh, there being a bipartisan flavor to it than criminal justice reform. And particularly around the area of how the criminal justice system treats poor people and how it uses the court's to raise backdoor backdoor taxes on the backs of poor people through these court costs. And what profit and punishment does 
is it follows these poor people who end up committing minor crimes. One of my main characters is a woman named Brooke Bergen. Yep. She stole an $8 tube of mascara from a Walmart. She ended up doing a year in county jail and owing $15,000 for her bill in jail. Now, some of your listeners are going, wait, 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 what? Every single state in this country has a law that allows cities or counties or states Sometimes all of them do it. Sometimes just some of them do it to charge you like a hotel bill for your time in jail. And when poor people get this bill, what used to happen in Missouri until I started reporting on it and the legislature and the Supreme Court made a change is that people who couldn't afford to pay their bill for jail ended up back in jail. Now, both liberals and conservatives, for sometimes different reasons, recognize, wait a minute, that's the tyranny of big government. Right. You can't take away people's freedom like that. These people weren't. We banned debtors prisons in this country in the 1800s. But when you read Profit and Punishment, you find out the debtors prisons are alive and well. We call them something else. We say, well, we had to issue a warrant for this person because they didn't pay their fines and fees. And if that person doesn't answer the warrant, misses a court date, doesn't afford to pay their bills, fails a drug test issued by a private for-profit probation company, all of these things contribute to a poor person having a completely different judicial situation than somebody who looks like me or you and has 80 bucks in their pocket and can write a check and, and not have to be in jail because of bail or whatever else. Right. And so it's a, it's a fundamental part of our broken system and all three branches of government uh, are involved. There's a chapter in the book called the Koch brothers meets the ACLU. And, and it's one of my favorite chapters in the book because it talks about how people on the left and people on the right get this. And right now in this country, I wrote a column about it uh, last month. Last month, the ACLU, the Koch brothers, and the Fines and Fees Justice Center started a national campaign on this topic called End Justice Fees. Wow. So the left and the right, again, coming together and saying, we've got to stop putting poor people in jail just because they're poor. And I love this story, this, this larger story, because I like it when people in the greater political world get beyond the R or the D and focus on the issue and realize, Hey, wait a minute. Lots of us agree on this topic. We can do some things on this topic. If we pass bills that ignore whether or not they're sponsored by a D or an R. Um, And the one area in which, um, there's sort of a political minefield as it relates to the criminalization of poverty. And there shouldn't be, but I'll explain why there is, is the one that you just mentioned. So Alec Caracasanis with uh, the civil rights Corps, which is a nonprofit in DC uh, announced yesterday, the lawsuit against Los Angeles trying to force bail reform. That same nonprofit was involved in trying to change the the statewide constitution in California successfully as it relates to uh, uh, how they abuse poor people over, over their uh, unconstitutional system of bail. And when you talk about bail reform in politics, there is a clear divide. New York is a good example. Um, And yet, 
when you do what I did in my column today on crime and you look at the data, the great thing about most of the cities that have passed bail reform, uh, New Jersey is a state, New York is a city, Houston is a city. They have also required in their bills there to be a yearly study that says of the people that are no longer being held on bail, what's the recidivism rate and are they showing up for court? Right. And three things have happened in all the studies on bail reform in the places that have actually reformed the bail system so far. There is not a tick up in recidivism, mm-hmm. meaning that is bail reform is not driving crime. I know that's a that's a narrative in New York. It's a narrative driven in Illinois by their own mayor. Right now. Driven by their it's own mayor. not true. Right. The actual data doesn't show that it's true. In fact, it shows the opposite. There's no uptick in recidivism. People are showing up for court at about the same amount percentage as as they were when they were stuck in jail. Yep. And 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 it works. And meanwhile, there's fewer people in jail. And why do Republicans like this? Because it saves tax dollars. Because when 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 we are the most mass incarcerated country in the world, yep. and it's not even close, our tax dollars are paying for that. And if it's not providing for more public safety, why are we doing it? Exactly. Yeah, and, and and that's it's encouraging to see that people are getting getting attuned to this, right? And we have seen you, you, here in Missouri. We did see the reform was heck. I think Eric Schmidt himself, the guy who just got elected to Senate, was uh, one of the guys who drove and was interested in these reform issues. So it, I think there's it, it. It's funny. I, I I do get having read all your work and, and and the reason you got the pulser and all. I've always I have had that that sense of optimism that we can find these issues. And it goes to also Tony. It reminds me of these issues we feel we face here in Missouri on like the national. The, the state ballot level, right? Like issues that should be left or right. As long as you don't call them that, we tend to pass them, right? You know, like like right, marijuana right. reform, right? You know, it's like, well, a, a state that is as red as Missouri should not have legal just passed a, a, a amendment legalizing marijuana, yet here we are, right? If you take away the R and the D and the tribalism that goes with those issues and then focus on the issues and the and how they impact us as Americans, as Americans as a whole, you do. And, and your work has led to that. It's been a well, that's of that. that's one of these places where, where Missouri is to some degree a microcosm of the nation. There was when I started writing in Missouri, Missouri was a presidential bellwether state. Right. Um, we were a state that actually drew national money right. uh, because we would go back and forth in presidential races between the R and the D. And we were sort of seen as a bellwether. Yep. That's, that's no longer the case, but we are still, I believe a microcosm of the nation and, and, and the marijuana ballot initiative is one of those. So Missouri was one of uh, several States now to legalize marijuana. I think eventually it's going to be uh, nationwide for the most part, Missouri in the last couple of years, despite being Almost completely read at that. Well, it's now completely read at the statewide level in yep. terms of uh, statewide elected officials. Yep. Um, Missouri has had Missouri voters have increased the minimum wage. Missouri voters have um, uh, beat back right to work uh, and protected workers rights. Missouri voters have uh, legalized uh, first medical marijuana and now um, uh, recreational, uh, adult use marijuana. Um, when ballot issues, Missouri voters passed ethics reform, uh, in the state legislature and then the state legislature by referendum, uh, dishonest referendum ended up gutting much of that reform. Um, but Missouri voters frequently vote 
when there isn't a a partisan D or an R next to the ballot issue for things that are the exact opposite of the elected Republicans that they're also electing sometimes in the same election. And it's weird, but, but I think that's common in the country. I I think one of the most important things that happened in the midterm is five different States. uh, Three of them, I think relatively liberal and, and, and and two of them uh, pretty deep red, including Kentucky uh, protected women's rights to freedom by either putting abortion rights into their constitution or beating back a statewide constitutional amendment that tried to take away their rights. Kansas did so previously a couple of months ago in, in, in August, I think in their election. And so that to me is really hopeful when you put these important questions before statewide electorates, whether it's a red state or a blue state, uh, voters ultimately see through the noise. Um, I, I wish for the sake of democracy, Democrats were better at taking advantage of those votes yeah. so that there was uh, a little bit more, um, you know, balance across the country. But perhaps this midterm is the one that, that moves us in that, in that direction. I mean, clearly Democrats had a very successful midterm, not just, in terms of holding on to the Senate, they turned the state legislature in uh, Michigan, in Colorado, another sort of bellwether state. Democrats won almost everything. Yep. Um, still to be decided whether or not Bobo goes back to Congress. <laughs> might even might even win that race. But um, uh, be amazing. I, I mean, I mean, it was it was the Democrats made lots of gains, including in Missouri, minor gains in right. the House right. in in the state legislature. That's a big deal. Yeah, and I was going to get to that. I mean, as you know, we both talked to uh, Minority Leader Crystal Quaid. Um, you know, she did pick up a couple competitive state house seats. I think they picked up three seats. The, unfortunately, they were not able to break the Republican supermajority. For those, by the way, who don't understand how a supermajority works, the way a Republican supermajority works, why we use that term, is, you know, Missouri has one of the largest state legislatures in the country. And it does not have those rules where if you've seen other states where like the Democrats or the Republicans have like left the state and hidden so they couldn't have a quorum, the way the Missouri laws are structured, the, con- the Constitution is structured, it doesn't matter if the Dems show up at all. With a supermajority of Republicans, they, they don't need a single Dem to even show up for work and they can pass whatever laws they want, which is why we talk a lot about here in Missouri of breaking the quote supermajority. Now, they had some luck last session because – there's a couple of Republicans went to jail and they had some people get sick. So, so in the end, the Republican supermajority and when it came to actually casting votes uh, was undermined. Um, and, and so she made some progress here, but you know, we, you know, I, I do see um, there's some lessons or you saw, if we mentioned this, Saturday, do, do you think there's a strategy to, that can pull the state along back in the middle again? I mean, do you see hope in this turn? I mean, it's, it's hard to see hope. I mean, we did, they did win a state Senate seat here in the, um, in the, uh, the county. St. Louis County. I, I, you've been here since what 1999. Do you see hope in that strategy that Crystal's, you know, running candidates in every district, running them in the hard places? I mean, can we pull it back to the center again? I, I think that's one of the things that's been missing. So I've written a column twice in the last uh, two or three election cycles about how few seats in Missouri, both Republican and Democrat, are are swing seats and are contested. Yeah. Um, so many House members actually run for office uncontested. Right. Uh, in, in, in some Democrat 
uh, controlled districts and in a significantly higher number of Republican controlled districts. A lot of that is because of really extreme gerrymandering. And, and unfortunately, voters tried to fix that and, and state lawmakers pushed back. But when you run uncontested elections, so then what happens in that situation is when you're going to the local farm bureau or the local uh, uh, rotary club or the local chamber of commerce that has its local state reps and county commissioners and folks come give their little five minute talk before the chicken dinners. Every town in America has these sort of gatherings in Missouri, because so many of those Republican dominated areas in, in rural districts don't have Uh, contested elections, when the Republican incumbent state rep gets up to talk about the marijuana initiative or the or the uh, minimum wage initiative or the abortion rights initiative or whatever might be on the statewide ballot that people tend to care about, there's not a Democrat at those meetings to just stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I think a lot of us actually agree on this topic. Uh, I'm going to be voting in favor of this, and here's why. And so they're only getting one side. Right. So just going through the process of having contested elections, I think, is how you actually build that statewide change. It's actually more of a bottom-up than, you know, a top-down. In, in in Missouri this year, Democrats um, at the at the Senate level tried the opposite. They went and found somebody who could self-fund to run against Eric Schmidt, um, and she lost. She she didn't have any record. She hadn't, you know, she's a nice lady and 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 you know, I think ran a better general campaign than she did a primary campaign. But but you know, learned um, and and got better. But it wasn't sort of bottom up it was it was top down and lost pretty bad meanwhile uh the minority leader in the house crystal quaid from springfield was trying really hard to recruit local state reps to run at that level and i really think that's where the change uh if you're going to have long-term change if you're going to have 10-year change generational change right that's where it has to happen because you have to build a bench, you have to build volunteers, you have to get people that are interested. And then all of a sudden, when you have those ballot initiatives, if Missouri, for instance, and I'm sure Democrats are going to try to do this after looking at the midterms, if Missouri uh, Democrats try to get an initiative on the ballot to protect abortion rights, um, in this state, Missouri has one of the most extreme abortion bans in the country, um, then that's going to make a difference in 2024. But that only makes a difference if you have people running in every district to talk about that at the local chicken dinners. Right. And I saw, I, I talked to some folks who are, are from a group called Blue Ohio, David Peppers. You see him on, on the internet doing his little whiteboard videos and some others uh, are really good. And they did a study and found that uh, statistically, if a race is competitive, it competed, just competed at all. In other words, a Democrat and a Republican are both in the ballot. At least one point on average, 1.5% more people vote in that election, right? They just, they just show up. They will vote either yeah. way, which is good for statewide candidates. I, I say often, and if you, if you heard the show before, I talk about how in Virginia, you know, McAuliffe lost, everybody blames CRT in Northern Virginia. But if you really unpack the numbers, 
he lost to rural Virginia, where which should have been thirty-five Dem, it was twenty Dem, and you can you can't lose a hundred counties by fifteen points and think you're going to win a statewide office. Here in Missouri, Eric Schmidt. I mean, I was unpacking the numbers for Eric Schmidt's win. It was gutting to see something like thirty-five counties. It was eighty twenty. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> you know, Republican. So you've got a, you got a, a and those aren't people t- that are voting for Eric Schmidt. Those are people that are voting for They're the just R. An R, right? And so, yeah. that, and that gets to a, another issue that I want to unpack along those lines is, you know, you've worked across the state of Missouri and from semi-rural cities all the way here to St. Louis. You know, one of the things I'm seeing nationally that worries me on this line, on that same divide, is a growing divide between our cities and our rural regions, and the, and the, the divides economically, politically, educationally, and now here in, in Missouri, we really are dealing with a healthcare divide as our rural hospitals are closed. And the same thing is happening in Georgia where I was working recently. You know, so Missouri is a perfect model of this growing divide. I mean, do you see the same trend? Or are there any solutions out there along the same line that are even remotely addressing this growing divide? And what's the danger of this growing divide from your perspective, Tony? I mean, it, it, this, it, we, we live in different worlds in many ways, right? We, we do, but we have to find those those commonalities. Okay. Um, one of the things I write about in Profit and Punishment is how the experience in white, poor, rural Missouri in terms of the interaction with the criminal justice system is very similar to the experience of black, poor, urban St. Louis hmm. in terms of the interaction with the criminal justice system. Yep. I noticed that in there's the book not, myself. Yep. There's not the racist element that exists um, that people of color have to deal with but the idea of the, 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 the man keeping you down because you're poor and ending up in jail because you owe money in the system is a very common connection between black and white, between uh, urban and uh, rural. And so from my standpoint, if I were guiding you know, folks who work in the political realm, I would say you have to find those commonalities. So what are they? So so minimum wage passed in Missouri. You talked about healthcare and the closing of rural hospitals. Uh, Medicaid expansion passed in Missouri and 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 had to be taken to the ballot yep. because Republicans were blocking it and and was popular in many rural areas. Why? Because grandma and grandpa who live on the farm get sick too, yep. and they don't want to have to be flown in a helicopter or a plane to a hospital in St. Louis, because that costs a lot of money and they may not have insurance, but there's no longer a rural hospital to take care of them. Right. And so, you know, the key to me to, to bridging those divides is finding those topics um, that, that matter to folks regardless of, their color, regardless of their socioeconomic background, regardless of whether or not they they, they live in a, a city or a rural area. And so we had, that's really great. I mean, I, I think you're dead on. We have to find our commonalities. And it goes back, segueing back to, you know, or a callback back to where we were earlier, right, about there are these unique uh things that bind us, right? Like you said, we, we do need health, right? We do need a, a living wage. Um, these are issues that, that, don't, that don't have anything to do with an R or a D next to your name or even a liberal or a conservative value. It's basic values and basic humanity between us as Americans. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think there is hope there. Um, I, I do hope that my, uh, well, as a political operative myself, I agree. Um, you know, and you, and you saw it here in Missouri, right? You know, I think, I think uh, Miss uh, Bush-Valentine uh, and and then before her, I think Lucas Kuntz, the Senate candidate, was really hammering Eric Schmidt about the 
the Chinese land sales of the farms, and it just absolutely did nothing. I mean, it just there's there's obvious that because our very most rural districts that are affected by that just didn't care, right? And those are the ways 80, 80 20. So you do have to do a better job, I think, of understanding the actual lives of these people. You know, it's somebody I talked to. You, I know you know Jess Piper, uh, Jessica Piper, who ran up in Northwest Missouri uh, in, in, a, in an uphill battle, dirt road Democrat. She calls herself has has really built a following online, well deserved following because she speaks the language of a, of a of a farmer. She is a farmer, but she's also a liberal. And, and Jess and I were on the phone yesterday talking, lamenting things, <laughs> lamenting politics. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Jess is on a mission too, to make people understand there are these, there are commonalities that bind us no matter where we happen to live. If we could find those shared values and, and speak to each other, be it rural or urban or black or white, uh, there might be hope for us. And I, maybe we dodged a bullet in this one, but there is well, a the challenge. One. The challenge for the Democrats there, I think is to, is, is to do what I think Jess Piper tried to do. And obviously in terms of her election, it failed pretty badly, but, but get beyond the demonization of the D. Right. Um, we're, we're, we're neighbors. We're, we're friends. We're, um, you know, you used to be a Republican. I used to, to, to vote a very split ticket yep. uh, most of my life. Uh, in terms of Republican versus Democrat, I'm from Colorado. I'm I'm sort of a traditional Western independent right. uh, in in terms of my politics, and our current environment, uh, influenced tremendously by the former guy, um, has 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 changed to where you know one side demonizes the other. If you if you ever consider voting for for right. a D or an R, and we've got to get past that demonization because. Bottom line is we're all Americans and we all have those common things. We, 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 we pay the same amount at the gas pump. We, 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 we have our kids in, in the local schools. Those are the things that draw us together. And um, I think again, because of the pandemic uh, separating us and keeping so many of us out of social groups that might be mixed politically and yes. otherwise, um, we've lost that ability to just commune with each other. And, and we need to find a way to get that back. Our politics as a nation will be much better when we can do a better job of getting back to just being able to talk to each other uh, politely about our differences. And, and sit in the baseball stands, just have a friendly conversation about hot dogs again. Uh, it's yeah. like even that's hard to do these things. Um, you know, another thing that is unique, and I, I don't know those same, along those same lines you know, Missouri is in many ways sort of the birthplace of what is the right-wing media ecosphere, right? I mean, it's, it's home of none other than the rotten godfather of the movement, Rush Limbaugh, right? I mean, Rush Limbaugh got his start on AM radio right here in Missouri, which is in many ways you can trace his his growth right through to where we are today where there's an alternative media um, universe, if you will. Um how do we fight back against this alternative? I mean, that's what the other thing is. These, this tribe was driven by this alternative media. I mean, do you see your colleagues, do your colleagues, for example, see the risk and the danger? I mean, I know we're facing falling revenue. Obviously, newspapers are in trouble. You you're, you work in the business, right? Um, is, is it possible for the existing media to take on this fight and understand the danger we're in? I mean, I was very frustrated I think I've expressed it multiple times with how the right wing talking points about the economy, about crime became mainstreamed by our political press um, without question, if you will. Uh, and, and it hurt us when we found out later the issue still was the same. It was abortional. So, I mean, you as a member of the committee, you've been a journalist for your life. I mean, do you think our, our, our media is up to the task or uh, is there hope there or should we continue to wor worry? Because I do beat them up pretty hard. Well, I worry. I uh, I share some of your fears about the national political media. Yeah. Um, and and I I think that um, the the horse race coverage 
uh, really takes away from um, the reality of just telling the American people what's going on. And, and, I, and I do think the media in general has to do a better job of that. Uh, there's a there's a journalism professor named Jay Rosen who I follow on Twitter yep, who writes a lot about this, yep. and 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 he's been on that for years and he's completely right. And the problem is there's so fewer of us doing really strong right. issues based political coverage is hard work, and there's fewer of us in newsrooms than there used to be. Horse race coverage is easy, right. because somebody calls you and says I got a poll. It's a bullshit poll, but I got a poll and. Uh, and well, I can get a headline out of that and I can write, you know, 10 inches out of that. And all of a sudden, uh, somewhere at the bottom of the story, there's a line that says, yeah, this poll might be bullshit, but, right. uh, and, and, and unfortunately that drives, I think a little bit too much of our, of our national, uh, uh, political coverage. The, the, the problem with the, the solution to the right-wing atmosphere, I think is actually in the courts. Um, Rush Limbaugh begat Gateway Pundit, which is based here in St. Louis and contributes to a lot of the national right-wing blogosphere lies, uh, pushes the big lie, pushes all sorts of really horrible things. Well, Gateway Pundit is being sued in federal court right now over the damage that it did to people's individual lives in Georgia, going back to uh, uh, related to the big lie. Right. And it's similar to what you're seeing with the Dominion libel lawsuits against Fox, against One News Network, against Newsmax. Those things are going to have an impact and eventually cost right wing media companies enough money that they will have to adjust. And I think that's really the solution. I, I've been as a journalist my entire life. Uh, schooled in the world of libel and how to avoid it and how to focus on the truth and how to be fair. And, um, and it's protected me and the companies that I've worked for. Well, Um, the right wing blogosphere doesn't pay attention to that. And I'm hoping that these lawsuits are successful enough. The, 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 the lawsuits that the Newtown parents brought against, uh, of Alex Jones and, and, and costing him about a billion dollars or more. Um, eventually that stuff has to have an impact. Yeah. Eventually that business model has to change. Uh, we have to take away the financial incentive uh, to lie. And, and, and I really think the courts are probably going to be the place where that has to be fixed. Oh, I agree. I think that's great insight. And, and you're right. It is until we break the hold of the, it is money. I mean, again, it, it all circles, circles back to that. There's a market for it. Uh, and the marketplace drives these decisions. And unfortunately they, they are, you are seeing, and there's hopeful signs here. I mean, you've got nonprofit like Missouri independence growing here in Missouri as a nonprofit newsroom. I mean, there's, there is a, a, a there is a, a larger ecosystem being grown that it is, this does offer hope, but yeah, it's it's tough to watch, and and I get I, I get it. I my, the thing about my problem always I have a hard time criticizing you and your peers because I'm a huge fan. I'm a journalism guy. I, I was a you know I was a public affairs officer in the army. I I I saw my mission is to telling the the people of America their story of their military, and 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 the journalism media was that conduit. So it pains me greatly to criticize my people I enjoy working with so much, but. Yeah, I just having to spend a whole day in Georgia watching, um, for example, CNN saying, well, the Dems have really failed before the a single vote had been counted. Uh, the Dems, Dems have really failed. They never address this economy issue and the crime issue. I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Are you sure about that? It was funny yeah. watching because at five o'clock they had their first 
uh, exit polls come in and they're like, oh, this is weird. The 35% of people said the number one issue was abortion. I mean, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. You, you spent the entire day telling us we were full of shit. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, you know, it, it's, um, I can't, we have to drive these conversations, but it's just, it's just frustrating in the, in the way we go about it. Well, this has been a great conversation. Tony, I don't want to drag this out too long. I, I really appreciate you. Thanks all the work you do. Um, how do people who are following us and have discovered you now, discovered your book, find you, find your book. How do we find more of your great talent? I'm on, I'm on Twitter at, at Tony mess, T O N Y M E S S. And uh, if you check in my profile there, you can, you can see a link to go buy my book. It's available at bookstore bookstores everywhere and online and everything else. And, uh, I appreciate you giving me a chance to plug it. And, uh, um, God, God bless our democracy. I hope uh, we continue to uh, hold on to it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it myself. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, I think we've got, I mean, I, I will leave on a hopeful note too. I think, I do think we, I, I, we won. I mean, I, there's, there's, you can say what you will, the house and all, but in the end, we, 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 we stood against the wind and a lot of Americans came forward and said, I'm tired of the crazy. I'm tired of the chaos. I'm tired of the lies. Um, uh, one of the things I said, I did a little TikTok video the other day, which is a new thing for me, Tony, you'll appreciate it. Is uh, <laughs> it was kind of weird, but I, and, and it's, I was thinking I was in Richmond visiting and I'll leave, I'll close on this as, and you know, the thing about Richmond, I was, I, there's a bridge in Richmond, beautiful. And it goes across the James river and they, they highlight the, the, the fall of Richmond. And, and it made me think what's interesting about the fall of Richmond is what you don't see in those words, right? What happened was when, when Petersburg fell and Lee withdrew, which opened Richmond to um, falling, Grant didn't go to Richmond triumphantly and do a parade down the middle of the street in Richmond. He skipped Richmond. He chased Lee and he chased Lee across all the way to Appomattox courthouse in our 90 miles across Virginia before Lee finally, uh, when, when union troops cut him off his retreat, he finally realized his, his war was over at that point. And it reminded me that, that we're at that point as a military strategist and as a, as a democratic activist, that we're in the pursuit right now. We have beaten our enemy, at least, at least a draw. I think, I think we could say we pulled a draw on this one. Like cold Harbor was a draw for the union army. Now we have to, we have to exploit that. We have to continue to push. Uh, I urge my peers and, and those who care about democracy to continue to pursue, pursue our, our opponents um, until their demise, right? It's how you know, Trump's running again. The MAGA movement really took a hit. Carrie Lake lost. It's fantastic. Some of the most extreme members of the MAGA movement lost. Now we have to continue to push them until we remove them from our body politic because there's no place in our, author- our, our, our world and our democracy for authoritarianism. Uh, so anyway, that's, there's hope for us both, Tony. There's hope for us both. As always, you can find me online and I'm still on Twitter, still holding out there with my friend Elon, uh, FP Wellman. Uh, you've got FP Wellman official on Instagram. I'm putting lots of pictures and now TikTok videos. I'm on TikTok as FP Wellman. You can go all those places. And of course, the podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you find it, Buzzsprout, YouTube. We'd love you to go subscribe. I'd love you to sign up. I'd love you to tell your friends. I'd love you to do a good positive review. No negative reviews. I got enough problems. <laughs> and with that, <laughs> with that, I'm going to go have a beer with my friend Tony sometime this week. And, and I look forward to seeing you guys next week right here in the same batch channel, Sam Bad Place, on Democracy with F.B. Wellman. Have a great week.